1: Hi, this is pod Save the uk
2: i'm nish Kumar, and
1: i'm coco khan
2: this week rishi sunak continues to be the world leader we can all be proud of
1: he started off the week by pissing off the greeks
2: and now he's off to cop 28 to walk back some of the things he's recently said about climate change
1: plus we have a fascinating chat with Kainde andrews professor of black studies at birmingham university find out who he thinks will be britain's first black prime minister Hi, Nish. How's your week
2: been? My week's been good, Coco. How's your week been? Yeah,
1: it's been it's been good. I've been travelling around. I was in Liverpool just doing some reporting. I was in Folkestone in Kent for a book festival. I've been around
2: from Liverpool to Folkestone. (laughs) Yeah, from from the northwest to the southeast. Been
1: around the world, and I still can't find my baby. (laughs) You know, it's tough. My most exciting news is that I saw a. UK bank note when I was in Liverpool administered by the Bank of Ulster and these notes these Northern Irish pounds don't have the Queen on it or the King or any Royal it's mainly who do they have on it? just uh, bunnies bunnies
2: and birds and bunnies and birds bunnies
1: and birds yeah that's the Britain I can get behind.
2: I, 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 it
1: might have been a special edition, but the, the the idea that these notes exist, this currency can exist in the UK where it doesn't have the monarchs. Oh, I loved it. The Republican in me.
2: That's Joyful. fascinating. Yeah. You, well, they may as well whack Adele on a fiver. <laughs> Adele's a, a British icon everyone can get behind. You're never too Wh- big for whack Adele. Adele on
1: a fiver. <laughs> Why not? Also, Nish, I notice you're wearing your Choose Love jumper.
2: I am Indeed. Choose Love, uh, Help Refugees Charity, Um, and I did my annual piece of retail work uh, because Choose Love actually opens a physical shop uh, on Carnaby Street in London um, every year. It's open this year. If you're in London, check it out. You can actually go in and buy supplies that refugees need for the winter things like uh, tents, kids' winter coats. It's really, really incredible. Uh, they do it every year. And, you know, it's a really wonderful thing. If you're in London or New York, they've got physical shops. Uh, if you're in neither of those places, or if you just can't be bothered to leave your house, you can also do an online shop. So you can go to www.choose.love and buy essential supplies that could be life-saving for refugees. And you just buy it and it immediately goes directly to the people that need it. It's a really great charity. And anyway, every year I do something at the shop and and uh, this year, it took the form of me volunteering on the tills. That lasted about 30 seconds. And eventually, <laughs> the safest thing for me to do was just stand outside holding a sign like the golf sale arrow guys. You know, like they made the, guys the that right. Like, they hold the big placards <laughs> that say golf sale this way. I was that for the choose love shot.
1: I think they made the right choice. You know, it's like service with a smile. Like, you'd be very service with a grimace. (laughs) Service with some snark. It's not what you want, is it?
2: Well, at one point, the arrow was pointing in the wrong direction, Coco. Okay, so you're born for this sector. Yeah, I'm not sure that there's any uh, practical use for me in a shop.
1: It's been another eventful week in British politics. I wouldn't say we're missing Soella quite yet, but the new Home Secretary, James Cleverley, has hardly covered himself in glory so far. He's had to apologise to the House of Commons for using unparliamentary language, although he denied accusations that he insulted a Labour MP's constituency of Stockton North by calling it a shithole.
3: I know what I said. I rejected the accusation that I criticised his constituency. My criticism, which I made from a sedentary position about the honourable gentleman, used inappropriate language, for which I apologise. But I will not accept that my criticism
2: was of his constituency because it was not. Who was it of? Did he call a man (laughs) a shithole?
1: Maybe he said shithead, shithead, shithole. Anyway, not to be (laughs) outdone,
2: his boss, the Prime Minister and professional charisma vacuum, Rishi Sunak, insulted an entire country. Uh, He sparked a diplomatic row by cancelling a meeting with Greece's Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis at Downing Street at the last minute. Apparently because he was annoyed that the Greek Prime Minister had made reference to the controversy over the contested sculptures uh, known as the Elgin Marbles here and the Parthenon Marbles in Greece, where they're actually from. Uh, This was all on Laura Koonsberg's BBC One show.
1: This is not a question uh, of returning uh, uh, artifacts
4: whose uh, uh, ownership we we question. We feel that these sculptures belong um, uh, uh, to Greece and that they were essentially stolen. But this is not, in my mind, an ownership question. This is a reunification argument. Where can you best appreciate what is essentially one monument? I mean, it's as if, if, if I told you that you would cut the Mona Lisa in half and you would have half of it at the Louvre and half of it at the British Museum. Do you think your viewers would appreciate the the beauty of the painting in such a way? Well, this is exactly what happened
2: with the Parthenon um, uh, sculptures. So these Parthenon sculptures uh, are a collection of Greek sculptures that the British took uh, from the Acropolis in Athens uh, between the years 1801 and 1812 and are now available to view in the British Museum uh, in London. Now, the claim is that the Ottomans allowed them to be taken, but the Greeks uh, reckon otherwise. Uh, And the UK argues that giving them back would undermine other museum collections. Um, And that, you know, we like having them in London. (laughs) It's... It's an unfathomable argument. These were these sculptures were smashed and taken out of the Acropolis, like physically removed with hammers and stuff. Like it was, and they've now been plonked to the British Museum. And I don't think it's a particularly contentious thing that the Prime Minister of Greece thinks they should be in Greece like it seems unfathomable to me
1: right and it's not something that is you know the Greek prime minister is just on one I mean this is really big news Mm. in Greece and they are a really important European partner for us so it's not a great look
2: yeah, apparently Sunak's claim is that there was an agreement that the Parthenon sculptures wouldn't be discussed uh, at all. And then by giving uh, that interview to Laura Koonsberg, he had violated this sort of informal agreement that they had. So uh, he offered them a meeting with Oliver Dowden. And <laughs> as everyone who is offered a meeting with Oliver Dowden, he said, no, thank you. I would rather cut my visit to the UK short than have to be face to face with Oliver Dowden. Um, so, he, yeah, so the, he, he's actually uh, returned home. So it seems to have somewhat unnecessarily destabilised UK-Greek relations. It's
1: quite interesting because the Greek Prime Minister is... People say he's a bit like the Greek version of Rishi Sunak. Like yeah, he's he a cons- is a, he's
2: a conservative. I, I mean, it's hard of sometimes to draw direct political lines across yeah. countries, but he's, he's certainly a conservative and in the a Greek banker context. he's as
1: well. He's part of that, you know, sort of frictionless financial set. So you do sort of wonder, like, can Rishi Sunak get on with anyone? <laughs> can he do anything?
2: Well, this, this is the question here, isn't it? Does he have any skills hmm. as a statesman? And I mean, you would say that the answer is... Probably not. I mean, it it is interesting who Sunak is happy and not happy to be pictured meeting. I mean, he seemed pretty thrilled uh, to have a meeting with Elon Musk. Mm. Um, And then uh, last week at Prime Minister's Question Time, he seemed... Pretty unfazed by the allegations that uh, Elon Musk has been promoting anti Semitic conspiracy theories on X. I'll tell you who else was unfazed by them Benjamin Netanyahu, <laughs> who invited Elon Musk around for an absolutely unfathomable photo op uh, around uh, sites of the October 7th terrorist attack. It, so, but that's another issue entirely. But yes, yeah, Sunak alienating a sort of European partner seems like a move by someone who doesn't really understand the basic mechanics of foreign policy and statespersonship.
1: And Greece in particular is integral, right? Because, you know, we have been talking about recently how the latest migration numbers have come out and, you know, on this show we're generally pro-migration, but nonetheless it is kind of rich that this government says they're going to bring the numbers down and we have very, very high numbers. You know, they're talking about a small boats crisis. Greece is on the front line of a small boats crisis. So you would expect that given all of this, and of course what's going on in, in Gaza, that a meeting with the Greek Prime Minister might be more important than like showing the world that he's down on woke museums or whatever's going on
2: well so there you know Understandably, there's a lot of political commentators suggesting that this is some kind of a dead cat move, which is obviously this idea in politics that if you throw a dead cat on the table, all anyone's talking about is the dead cat. So it's the idea of throwing out a kind of irrelevant story that sidetracks the news agenda. But I'm not sure how successful that's going to be, because I'm not sure people who can't afford to pay their heating bills this winter or get an ambulance are going to suddenly think, well... I'm very, very cold, and my grandmother's extremely ill. Aww. But on the plus side, if I wanted to, I could go and see some marbles, <laughs> as long as I don't have to travel there by train, because none of them work either. Politics aside, everything else aside, if you steal something, give it back. That's the <laughs> basic principle of all of this.
1: So it's with some trepidation then that we await Rishi Sunak's next appearance on the world stage. The PM is about to fly to the UAE for the latest UN Climate Summit, COP28, which is being held this year in Dubai.
2: You did not miss here, Coco. It's being (laughs) held in Dubai. A climate summit is being held in Dubai, a city that exists as a shining example of how much you can build if you exploit fossil fuel to the (coughs) maximum. And also employ what is basically slave labour. What a fantastic <laughs> place. Anyway, uh, unfortunately, um, uh, that's <laughs> that's where the climate summit is being held. Um, and surely, presumably, it's no conflict of interest that the president of COP28, Dr Sultan al is also the CEO of UAE's giant state oil company, Adnok. Anyway... In terms of what can be achieved from this summit and what the main topics of conversation will be, let's find out more from our guest, Carl Matheson, who's the senior climate correspondent for Politico Europe. Carl, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, you're about to head out to Dubai. What are your expectations for this COP?
3: It's just been coloured by a message I got from a colleague that just said our hotel is between a bus stop, two bus stops, one called Cement Factory and one called Labour Camp. So, <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> but you know there's uh there's uh, a lot of people going to Dubai there's 70,000 people and I guess we got we got shafted on the hotel choice but (laughs) um look I, I mean more importantly I think the the thing about these these global climate summits that happen every year is like they get all these expectations hung on them that are in some ways unreasonable like we always think this is going to be the summit that sort of saves the planet Mm. and actually this is just 200 countries coming along to sit down together every year and like just nudge stuff forward and um the cop is never going to be the thing that saves the planet like it'll it'll create some sense of progress or it'll give us a temperature check of where we're at and that signal could be good and it could inspire markets and investors to invest more in clean energy or it could bad and things could recede a little and then we'll come back next year. So I think like, just to take the temperature down a little bit, we shouldn't expect the world to get saved in the next two weeks either way or or destroyed
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's what a great slogan for COP28 we should not expect the world to be either saved or destroyed
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean you mentioned the word progress there and maybe it would be incremental but I get the feeling it might be a reversal that we're going the wrong way is the UK travelling in the wrong direction especially given it's the the hottest year ever recorded are we going to look terrible on the world stage
3: This is happening all over the world is one thing to say. So um, I spent the last three years reporting from Brussels and even in Brussels, which is sort of this, you know, shining green light, uh, the last few months have been very, very difficult for green politics Mm -hmm. um, there too because I think there's a sense amongst a lot of voters that they're worried about climate policy, that it's going to cost them too much. There's a cost of living crisis. So there is like real sort of concern in the community and then certain political actors are responding to that. And that's, I think what you're seeing in Britain is, uh, you know, a, a, a government that is really casting around for the thing that's going to shift the polls. And so there's a, there's, there's some gesturing towards, Oh, we're going to, we're going to walk back on some policies. It's kind of interesting though. If you look at what Sunak has actually said, He's moved back some policies around electric vehicles, gas boilers, but a lot of the UK's like, climate policy it still remains intact and is actually moving forward and there's like interesting signals from investments coming in into the grid and uh, you, know, you had the Nissan uh, announcement this week where they're going to invest in making electric vehicles in Sunderland. So it's kind of weird because you've got this top-line signalling which is quite negative, and then actually underneath it, what the government is doing is like mostly business as usual, and you know where we've been talking about it as a kind of like almost lack of virtue signaling it's like the opposite of what you would expect <laughs> they're like they're they're, like, they're trying to make a a political case to a certain constituency domestically. How that then plays on the world stage is the real question like this is now now sunak and his ministers have to go to dubai and, and kind of own that domestic politics, and mm. I think that's going to be quite hard for them. I think it's going to there's going to be some tough questions being asked, and uh, it it doesn't bode well for the cop because the UK is one of just a handful of countries that really do actually genuinely push this stuff forward year
2: on year out. Is there any concern amongst kind of on natural international allies? You know, in the last sort of decade. The UK's in a lot of ways been moving in the right direction on climate. Is there a danger of Sunak in terms of this conference compromising his own international standing as a, 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 you know, and compromising the UK's standing as a leader on these kind of things?
3: I think that is, that's already happened. I think. Right. Is the, is the, like, Because of what he said domestically, that has been noticed mm. around the world. The way that that affects the politics of the COP is that the Europeans kind of really need the UK as an ally in their efforts to to push forward the most ambitious version of what will come out of the COP and, and the negotiated agreement at the end. Because the Americans are compromised. The Americans have difficult domestic politics. They're a huge fossil fuel producer. So they're sort of in a different boat. And it really is the Europeans and the UK that drive this stuff forward alongside their allies in the small island states.
1: So let's talk about Keir Starmer. Uh, He'll be in Dubai too. So will Ed Miliband and David Lammy. Presumably they're trying to create a different image of a future Britain. Um, What what do you think about the Labour approach? The
3: Labour approach is kind of interesting, isn't it? Because they are... obsessed with the idea of winning the next election, obviously. And so their whole thing is like, climate change is good news for the economy. We're going to build a a vibrant green uh, economy with tons of new jobs, and we're going to invest lots of money. Um, They don't want to talk about the other side of climate policy, which is, hey, you know what, you might have to like fit a new boiler in your home or actually a heat pump which might actually be slightly more expensive they don't want to talk about the kind of regulation so they're all very much about carrots and not sticks leading into the election I don't think that that's a realistic uh, proposition in government like they will have to regulate to meet their climate targets eventually as well as doing this kind of uh Joe Biden inspired, like, we're going to just invest tons in all of the great British industries. And so that's the challenge or the the sort of departure from reality that Labour are are, are kind of toying with at the moment before they actually hit government.
2: What about the fact that it is being held in Dubai, which is obviously a, an oil-rich, oil-producing country. There are also uh, reports that the UAE is intent on using the gathering as an opportunity to do deals for its oil. Is this whole summit capsized by the choice of location?
3: If this COP ends up being a real bust, yeah. it, it would be wrong to points to the UAE and say this is all because of you because there's 200 countries at this COP and all they are is the host. They convene the countries. What comes out is actually ultimately down to the 200 nations present and it would be a, a mistake at the end if we all sort of just turn around and blame the UAE. Having said that, look, there there is obviously a conflict of interest um, in a, an oil CEO hosting the COP, I think it's completely unsurprising now that we're seeing reports that he was being advised to broker deals as he went around the world meeting other countries um, on oil and gas because that's literally his day job. Like yeah. his, his, his job is to make these deals and then he had this other job as a government official working on climate. So I think it's utterly unsurprising that we now have some documentary evidence that this was happening. The impact of this is more going to be on the mood of the cop and and how toxic it gets if things start going wrong because the presidency needs the trust of all the countries and every report that we have like this hurts that trust. So they're going to have to really pull it out of the bag, I think is <laughs> basically, like I think they're probably feeling intense pressure now to do something pretty remarkable with this cop because
2: they know that, the narrative will be about them. Listen, it's just so that we don't end on all doom and gloom, there is so there is potential upsides here because you've got people in the room that need to hear the messages of COP more than anybody else, really. But also this idea that it, with the controversy around Dubai hosting it, there might be a pressure on them to really deliver something concrete or tangible to avert kind of negative press around the whole com- conference.
3: I think that I mean I, I think that that's absolutely the dynamic that's prevailing on the UAE right now, and also they have spent like they they really did try and use this as an opportunity to broaden the tent in terms of you know Sultan Al Jaber has been talking to his peers in the oil industry, the oil CEOs of both private oil companies and you know the Saudi Aramco's and like the giant national oil companies. He's He's been trying to broker agreements with them to start their process of decarbonisation and, and, and we will have announcements on that in the next few days. Will they be weak tea or will they actually be meaningful commitments? And that's where the kind of grey area that we, have, we don't know about whether this was a good idea or not. Um,
2: we'll, we'll kind of find that out in the next couple of weeks.
1: Right. Well, I guess we'll be watching it very
2: closely. Yeah, we'll definitely be talking more about COP uh, over the next couple of weeks, but uh, I'm glad that there is a note of hope for us to go into it on. That's really great. And thank you so much, Carl. Um, have a have a great time uh, between the bus stop and the Labour camp. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Take your sunscreen. It's very it.
1: hot everywhere, actually. <laughs> anyway, see you later, Carl.
2: Cheers. Bye. Coming up next, we've got a fantastic interview we recorded with A Andrews a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we cover a huge amount of subjects. It was a fascinating chat. Uh, we also talk about his new book, The Psychosis of Whiteness. That's coming up next.
0: The New York Times calls BritBox the best of British telly. Stream acclaimed original series, including Payback, starring Peter Mullen. Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, and Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, starring Jason Isaacs. Plus, discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and the return of BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamra Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com.
1: On this podcast, we look at ways to navigate conversations with people we vehemently disagree with. Should you turn a Tory? Is it worth being in the firing line time and time again to debate right-wing views Or is a radical approach the best way to get closer to meaningful change?
2: Kyendi Andrews, who's joining us now, has frequently jumped into the eye of media storms. He's particularly navigated conversations on racism, often with those who choose to not see what's painfully obvious. He's a professor of black studies at Birmingham City University, and his latest book is called The Psychosis of Whiteness. And it's a text that's aptly summarised by its subtitle, Surviving the Insanity of a Racist World. Kyendi Andrews. Welcome to Pod Save the UK.
1: So we are going to talk about the book, but I just wanted to speak to you firstly about this current government. And what I mean this current government, let's just broad brushstrokes, say, the last sort of five years. So we've had a lot of high-profile POC politicians. So, you know, right now, obviously, Rishi Sunak, the first uh, person of colour prime minister. We have got James Cleverly, the first black home secretary. Uh, we've got, gosh, there's so many to name. Hamza <laughs> Youssef, the Scottish first minister. And, you know, previously we've had Suella Brotherman and Priti Patel and Kwasi Kwarteng. Briefly. Briefly, very briefly. <laughs> um, so... There is this idea that whether we like it or not, the Conservatives are doing better, I'd use quote marks, on race than than we are. And even when I'm hanging around in kind of like, you know, whatever, progressive lefty circles, you'll hear people say, look, you know, I don't like the Tories. But you have to admit, it is a bit special, isn't it? It is a bit special. But your book would say no.
4: Well, I mean, it's definitely different, right? But this is actually the, the perfect example of psychosis where you have the most diverse government in British history and also the one pursuing the most racist immigration policy. And was, those things aren't disconnected. So, actually, the real identity politics, which they've really got from America, is if you want, you get a black or brown person to, to say and do the racist things. It's not a coincidence that they have to have somebody brown in you know, Home yeah. Secretary. They literally had to move cleverly to Home Secretary because this immigration policy is so racist. A white person couldn't do this, couldn't do Rwanda, couldn't do the barges. You need a black face for that. It's also not that new. So the British Empire, most of the people that ran the British Empire were black and brown functionaries, right? At the time of the Amritsar massacre, uh, the British army in India that were shooting people were 60% Indians. Yeah. So it's not even that new. It's just we've seen it come home into England and it's really quite devastating. And, I, and I, my, the, my worry, my actually, I'll put a bet on it. The next, so Starmer will win the next election, but after that, the first black, Uh, Prime Minister will be none other than Kemi Badenoch. And it will be like literally the worst moment of of (laughs) racial politics in the United Kingdom history.
1: So do you think that the, the idea that you should assess a party by representation is just defunct and just ridiculous and we should let go of it? Or do you think it does actually matter?
4: I'd rather have all white politicians making better laws. (laughs) <laughs> to be to be quite honest, because it, and it, this is this is this is what identity politics has become. It is your black and brown figures. And, you know, nowadays you can't you can't you criminalize use of words like coconut, yes, yeah. <laughs> new girls, all these yeah. kind of things. But I don't know. I mean, what when people are literally put in their position because they are black or brown, and they are put there not only because they're black and brown, but to do bad things to black and brown people, they should be we should be able to criticize them quite heavily. I would think.
2: Let's talk about the use of the word uh, coconut um, because we're actually recording this interview a couple of weeks before uh, before it comes out and the weekend that's just gone, um, there was obviously a a huge protest um, calling for a ceasefire in response to the war going on in Israel and Gaza and the police handling of those protests has been sort of heavily questioned and there was a use of the word coconut referring to uh, political figures, uh, specifically Sunak and Braverman. For people not familiar with that, uh, word, it's used uh, to describe somebody who's uh, brown on the outside and white on the inside. And there's now... I, I, I actually can't believe I'm saying these words out loud. Like, I can't believe no, no, I'm ridiculous. saying these words. Like, it's, I feel like I'm having an out-of-body experience. <laughs> yeah. uh, but there, uh, there is potential for this to be an alleged racially aggravated hate crime. And there is some legal precedence for this. In 2010, a local councillor in Bristol was found guilty of racial harassment for using uh, this term Uh, Kehinde, in my experience of using the word coconut (laughs) and being described as a coconut, I think they're going to have to lock up Everyone in Wembley, <laughs> like every Asian <laughs> uncle and aunt who's, uh, who encounters a child that did an English degree yeah, yeah. <laughs> is going to fucking jail. <laughs> I, w- w- what's happened here? You, nice. you, 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 you study race, mm. racism. How could you? Possibly explain to me what the fuck is going on? <laughs> no, it's
4: madness. I mean, come on. I mean, this is the they call us snowflakes. I mean, look, coconut an insult. Don't get me wrong. I've been called it. It's not nice, but it's a, a crime. I mean, yeah. that's, that's insane. And if you think about and this is, is is there's a there's a serious point where a lot of these terms, whether it be coon, Has, negro coconut, whatever, they come from anti-racism. They come from black struggle. I mean, coconut is basically Fanon's black skin white masks. Where yeah. you're saying, well, look, somebody can be black on the outside, but actually, if they do the same things as, as as white if they pursue the same policy, do want the same things as white people. Why are we why are we celebrating them? Why are we celebrating diversity?
1: So okay, right. This is a bit of a long story. I hope you're ready. A little while ago, <laughs> I made a joke online that has subsequently been deleted because I delete my tweets. I believe in second chances, everyone. Um, and I said that Sajid Javid probably gets Lemon and Herb at Nando's. It was a stupid little joke. It's meaningless.
4: Probably true. Really.
1: <laughs> it's probably true. And I think I got dragged maybe for days for, for that. And, you know, and actually some of the conversations I had afterwards about it were, they did give me pause before and I wanted to discuss some of them with you. So one of them was like, I understand the point that you're making there about, the Saj. It's funny talking about him now because he's quite mild compared oh, to who we've yeah. had. He's quite leveling. Yeah. 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 <laughs> now,
2: now that we've served up Suella, VUSA extra heart. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
4: oh, bring, bring, bring back
1: Sagis. <laughs> Someone was like, but but why can't why why is the Saj worse to you than Teresa May? They're both awful. Why do you hold him to a higher standard? Is that not in and of itself racist? what my brain (laughs) and
4: (laughs) he's like well I mean because you would expect someone who's gone through experiences had you know this is our lived experience so you'd think like when Preeti Patel makes laws but she wouldn't be in the contrary. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> you'd think you'd have a bit more sensitivity, right? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if she deported herself eventually. This is part of the thing we shouldn't expect. We shouldn't expect all black and brown people to look to to, to be on our side. Never mm-hmm. has been the case. Historically, it's not the case now. Um, there are There's a group of people who, who either are elite or want to be elite or want to be Tories, etc. It's not a coincidence that when... Um, Rishi joined the party in what two early two thousands. Yeah. There was like one black and brown Tory MP. Yeah, there are loads of them. Yeah. A, that's not a That's a purposeful strategy. I so genuinely, they can get their agenda.
1: honestly, I'm glad you said that because I have moments. sometime I'm like, where are you finding them? Claire Coutinho she's the latest. Is there a factory? <laughs> some sort <of> right wing Asian <laughs> factory? I'm like, who are these people?
4: Yeah, it's, it's a strategy. Like I said, I think Kemi Badenoch will be the next prime minister uh, after yeah. after Starmer. And the fact that she had, I mean, talk about psychosis, she was supported by Britain First uh, for. <laughs> The, wow. faci- the fascist party wanted a black woman as, pro- as prime minister. That tells you everything you
2: need to know. Let's talk about the book because there's a specific framing put around racism and whiteness, which mm. kind of wrapping up a couple of things we talked about already. Whiteness is a phenomenon that's not just exclusive to white people. It's a it, and so you put it through the lens of psychosis, and the title of the book is "The Psychosis of Whiteness." So, why choose the word psychosis? Um, to describe the phenomenon of whiteness,
4: because there's no other there's no other word to use, right? I mean, I was on the first piece of media I did was on um politics live, and there was a a, a black um GB News guy, um, but he was really like, you can't use the title. Why? Why are you just you're just trying to to, to get clicks? I come a professor, right? I don't just—I'm not actually a shock jock. I have a proper job, <laughs> so you know. If I'm, I don't just pick a word randomly, this is the only word that makes any sense when you think about what whiteness is. It is entirely delusional. It is. Um, this is why I'm saying it's—it's—it's it's, it's immune to facts. You can put all the facts out there that you want. I've been on TV, talked about this. Been in community, talked about this. Been in schools. I've been or every. It, there's 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 no rational way to deal with whiteness. Um. So that's why it's like a psychosis, and and that's essentially the argument. of The book is. We've been on the right side of the argument for 500 years. It hasn't really got us anywhere because we're trying to do the wrong things. You can't convince people who are trapped in a psychosis.
2: Some of those wrong things you sort of talk about are performative anti-racist actions and unconscious bias training in the workplace. I mean, those are well-intentioned schemes. Yeah. But you don't think that they're effective?
4: No, I think the the, the basic thing we've done is we've tried to convince those people in power, convince the majority that we should change, make it a moral issue. And can you, you, know, can you teach... Racism out of people with anti-bias training, with education, with Black History Month. Can you? That's kind of the approach you've taken. Like the more people know, the more we, that we can convince them not to be racist. And that's an answer. <laughs> that is not how it works. Society is racist because we need it to produce the, the goods we have today. Slavery happens because they need to produce cotton, etc. sugar. Today, the poorest parts of the world are so-called sub-Saharan Africa and the richest parts are the West white people at the top, black people at the bottom, everybody else in between, that's necessary because we need to take resources, we need to take labour from Asia and China, et cetera. So racism exists because it is the economic system and whiteness and the ideas that that keeps it in in place, that's produced by the system. So the idea that you can change the way we think without changing the system, is that
2: that that is a fantasy. So whiteness and (laughs) capitalism are essentially... Inextricably linked.
4: 100 percent. You cannot separate capitalism from colonialism. It's not an accident that black people are enslaved. It's not an accident that the empire enriches the West. All these things are are, are connected, and whiteness comes to comes into being to justify it. To justify why is it that the life expectancy of white people is like 80 80, 80 years, and the life expectancy in Nigeria is fifty-four? We justify that through white. That's what whiteness is. It's a set of ideas. And not just for white people, many of us embrace it. Kemi Badadak is a perfect example yeah. of, of somebody in the grip of the psychosis.
2: If we just take the post-2008 politics in the UK and the US, you can see the two of them are inextricably linked because you've got, you know, if, you, if we weren't talking about stopping the boats and talking about immigrants taking our resources, we would be able to have a conversation about how the public finances were essentially asset-stripped to pay off debts accrued by the deregulated financial sector.
4: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you think about it. This, is, this is, and actually, this um, identity politics of the right kind of starts with Thatcher when they want to get rid of um, social democracy. They want to cut the tax rates. They want to, you know, and then since what you've seen since that massive cut in tax is that obviously hospitals don't work as well. There's, there's no housing. There's not, stuff stops working when you stop taxing rich people. Yeah. But what they've done really well is they blame us. No, it's immigrants. It's migrants. Stop people coming in. And so your average person believes that the problem is is you and is you and me, you and me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not the rich people who keep taking all the money. Right?
1: I do want to talk to you about the title of this book, mm-hmm. though, because I, I it has attracted some controversy. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly, it's around the word psychosis. Is it ableist? I know you talk about this in the book, but just for our, our listeners, I wondered if you could you just explain why you decided to go with this.
4: Actually, the history of psychosis is. more political than it is medical. So in the early 20th century in in, in the States, it's about rich white people, white women. Black people aren't seen to be mentally developed enough to have a psychosis, right? It's only really in the 60s that it shifts when you have black power and civil rights they start to say, oh no, there's something wrong with these people. They're, 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 and there's a long history of the idea that black people want to be free means we're crazy, goes all the way back to slavery. And so psychosis shifts and becomes a label for us and it becomes the psychosis we now think of. So I wanted to trouble the notion of psychosis. Psychosis is not this objective thing we think it is. And it has been applied. I mean, black people are about seven times, between seven and 14 times more likely to be diagnosed with psychosis and to be um, sexed under the Mental Health Act. So I, I purposely picked it because it's, it's, it's something we need to rethink.
1: Also, I would say you do talk about being something of a provocateur in the book. And I did want to ask you about that. You know, you go on TV and you argue with Piers Morgan. One, why? (laughs) Like Genuinely, like on a personal level, how is that for you? And on a kind of political level, do you think that work is still important?
4: I enjoy it, to be <laughs> do, you, do you actually enjoy I it? I really do. Yeah. Well, I think I say watching, uh, watching him turn red um, made yeah, me understand yeah, yeah, what yeah. the term gammon yeah. Meant. Yeah. I mean, I really <laughs> um, But uh, no, because it's a, again, this is what, what are we trying to get out of these things? I don't go on there trying to convince him. Like, yeah. that's, that's pointless. I know you're not going to convince yeah, yeah. him. Um, I go on there well, every time I'll have a set of things I want to say or something. And actually, interestingly, in those kind of spaces, you can get so much more stuff. Like BBC, you can't say half other things I say or... I, yeah I right. So we had a whole thing about psychosis awareness on on GMB. Uh, I said the British Empire is worse than the Nazis. I could never have done this in any other place with peers. I actually got. I knew I knew exactly what. At some point, you just know exactly what you going to say. Yeah. So I set up the British Empire is worse than the Nazis. I, I knew if I say this, he'll say this, and I can say this. Yeah. yeah. I and mean, he it would explode, and that'll be the headline. <laughs> and then you've got this idea out right there, which otherwise wouldn't have been out there.
1: Because people put a lot of stock around the idea that it's like you know, at Christmas, talk to that racist uncle and persuade him. Yeah, I mean, do you think that's a waste of time?
4: Completely, yes. right? <laughs> no, completely. <laughs> people know, all the, in fact, the evidence on like whiteness studies and training actually tells you it doesn't work. Right. All the evidence says maybe you get for a second, for a few weeks, you'll get like a change. Then people will go back to their assumptions. This is what I'm saying. is say psychosis. There's right. no, there's no way to deal with it in that sense. We should be trying to fix the economic system, political economic system, not trying to convince convince people because there's no evidence of their
2: works. One of the things that we try and focus on is kind of tangible takeaways and focus on um, solutions. If the long-term goal is remodelling the political and economic systems, what's the kind of short-term goal that you could press, potentially, potentially press a Labour government for if that's <laughs> if that's where we're going?
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the idea that Labour's going to give you anything is that psychosis. Like, no, yeah. Labour's <laughs> better than Tories, I will vote Labour certainly, but it's not. I don't don't expect anything. I don't expect them to solve the problem. So I mean, I'm strongly arguing for uh, what black radicalism is—that we organise, we connect, we create connections across Africa and the diaspora. We're hoping to have um, for Malcolm X's hundredth birthday a congress of African people in 2025 on the continent. I haven't got a venue, which is why I haven't really told anybody. Um, But this is the thing. Long term, that's what we should be doing: trying to get allies and trying to get more, even more black professors. (sighs) It's not a bad thing, but it's not a thing that solves the problem. And too too often, what, what happens is we get stuck with this trying to fix the symptoms because the symptoms kill us, right? So, um, but if you don't actually fix a the disease, then you just always, always, always going to have the have the same problems reoccurring.
1: But I mean, you know, you work in academia. Mm-hmm. There is definitely a role for education, right? How else do you wake people up unless you tell them no?
4: Yeah <laughs> I'm the most reluctant professor in the world. <laughs> in fact I very rarely use a title, honestly. Yeah. Um because and what I've started thinking about as a as a metaphor is that it's the professor's like slave preacher. If you actually look at what the purpose of higher education is it's not this lefty radical thing that, you're, you're, <laughs> that the right wing likes to pretend. It's deeply conservative. You're just getting students in debt. It's hugely problematic. I, can, maybe I won't go into a lot of detail, but in many ways, it's similar to a slave preacher. Like the purpose of the school system is to keep us passive, keepers in the system. And that's why I, get, that's why I have my, my role. But also in the more positive sense, it was often the slave preachers like Nat Turner in America, uh, Denmark Vesey, um, Sam Sharp in Jamaica, who led rebellions. Because they had privileges, they were the ones who could read. They were the ones who could congregate in large groups of people. They could travel behind between plantations. And Most slave preachers, just slave preachers, but they were those who took their privilege
2: and kind of used to undermine the system. So that's that's the only reason I stay in academia. And, uh, just on a personal level, is that lonely? I don't. The man
1: you'd... says he debates Pierce Morgan for fun, <laughs> <laughs> so that tells me yeah. how much I am no enjoying hub- it. I have no
2: <laughs> he, he, there's various references through the book of my current employer.
5: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I try not to lead too hard on that, but yeah. there's there's various references to my, my at time of publication. <laughs> employer, do you is there? Do you feel quite? Do you sort of feel isolated in not just your specific institution, but in higher education as as a whole?
4: Yeah, I'm trying to get fired, but they won't do it. <laughs> yeah, i <I've
2: laughs>
5: read the, the book. book.
4: <laughs> Please. I don't think anybody's read it. I think that's the problem. What's What's the Just read it? Maybe they
5: are
4: <laughs> But actually, part of the reason for writing it was to kind of, to point out to people that it's actually lonelier when you try to make it in these white institutions. I mean, there's so few black professors. There's 160 in the whole country, 45 black women professors. But we actually can't all get on a plane together just in case it crashes. then (laughs) (laughs) And it won't even be a big plane. It's like a plane with like those little 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 propellers (laughs) on it. Um, I'm the only academic, still the only academic professor in the university. Um, In my own university, I have been for years. If I was just being an academic and and that was my I'd I'd have gone crazy a long time ago. Right. What keeps me sustained is that I do it's community, it's, it's we have international networks. Obviously I do my job, don't get me wrong. But, <laughs> but most, I I don't find um like even even things like um worth, value, I don't find that in the inside the university. I find it outside the university, which makes me actually makes me much happier. So that's
2: it's, what I'm trying to say. It's, so it's essentially your status that your professorship grants you. It's the satisfaction you get is what you're able to do with that status right outside of the institution potentially
4: yeah and that's I stress outside because to be quite honest, the status inside hasn't hasn't got me much <laughs> in fact since I got professor it, made, it got worse I actually had to go to the press about racism because it was that bad in the university yeah. I was uh, you know I was really upset I had to get counseling about it um, and I went to my mum and I told her the story and she was like well, that's what being black is and kind of walked off. And I was like, wow, I expected some sympathy. <laughs> there was no sympathy, but it taught me a lesson. I expected to be treated properly by a race institution because of my professorship. Forget it, you can't do that. And actually since then, I've taken a step back and it's like, well, look, it's a job and I'll do what needs to be. But I can't, my relationship to the place has changed, but in a way that actually makes me much more whole. And what I think this that? is for all of us.
1: But if Kemi uh, Badenoch became, took the highest office, do you think she, w- she could be immune to this? I think to
4: some extent, because the, when you're in these spaces, even if you can get success, like Kemi will get success, there'll be a time, there'll be a moment. Like Britain First, don't really like Kemi better; yeah. they like what they what she can do for them. Yeah. yeah. And at some point, it will go. all come crashing down for everybody.
2: What makes you hopeful in, in in amongst all of this? Where do you? What makes you hopeful and keeps you dr- driven?
4: Yeah, so I'm actually incredibly hopeful. So I've, radicals are always hopeful. I'm just saying, if we keep doing the same things, that's yeah. not going to, that's the definition of madness, right? That's the wrong thing to do. But what gives me hope is that I think people are now realizing that you can't get change. And I think for the last 40 years, 50 years, we really have can we reform things? Can we get more representation? This government proves beyond a shadow of a doubt <laughs> that representation does not mean things get better. So I think we, we, this, particularly younger people, are seeing that. Like Malcolm X said, this system can no more provide freedom, justice, and equality than a chicken can lay a duck egg. It's just not meant to do it, right? And once people understand that, then we'll start to say, well, let's do the, the revolutionary but well, Let's build the radical practice. Um, you, what, this, I'm actually not a critical race theorist. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Like, critical race theory is, not, is one thing which I don't do, um, but everybody black does, <laughs> <laughs> apparently. But one of the things from critical race theory is... Um, the idea of interest convergence. So the only time you get big changes is when the interests of um, minorities converge in the interests of the majority. That's what we should be thinking. Interest convergence, not allyship. And the example I give in the book is, is black studies. So we have the first black studies degree in Europe. And it's not because we made any moral appeals. It's not because I convinced the boss, the same boss who I had to complain about to the press about racism. Um, <laughs> but anything. It was because They started charging students fees in 2017. We could get an unlimited amount of students. And they literally went to uni and said, look, we're the only place in in the country that could do this. We could make money. And that's how we got Black Studies, right? Interest convergence. None of the people who did that were allies, as I later found out, obviously. But, (laughs) but, But that's how you get change. So if you really do want to have change, we should think much more about that rather than trying to convince people to be on our side.
1: But that makes it sound, if we want change, we should find a way to make money from it. (laughs)
4: <laughs> well, it, dep- well, it, dep- it depends. Like in that example, it was money, but it could be protest, right? So protest will bring boycotts, Bristol bus boycott in 60, uh, 63. That was interest convergence. Yeah. So yeah, this this protest, it's the economic argument, those kind of things. There's not one positive change that's happened because we've convinced the people in power that it's the, the right thing to do, because for moral reasons, always about economic, politi- political pressure. Those, those kind. Of, that's how you get the change you want.
1: That makes me a bit hopeless because um, I really care about the planet Earth, and uh, <laughs> I sometimes have this moment being like, "What could be more self-interested than saving the planet so that you don't die?" <laughs> and <stay laughs> and I've, I've, I've been surprised how little that has worked. So you know, that idea of making people see that social justice is in their interest—it's it's hard.
4: No, but that's again, and actually, so much of the climate is, is about white supremacy. The idea of constant growth, the idea of the way you have to treat the land, the idea of this exploitation of the earth is, again, intric- intricately wing- linked into uh, white supremacy, which is why it's impervious to, re- to reason. You'd think it's pretty obvious like we're all going to die.
5: <laughs> you should
4: do something different. But So, again, my strategy for climate change, that's not going to work. It doesn't work. Uh, so the protest is one. Maybe you can push that way. What we should be pushing is the Green New Deal. is good for the economy, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That's, that's the argument going to win. That's that's yes. how you're going to get the changes. That you need because it's not going to be a moral. A moral. This makes sense because we don't do things rationally.
2: In conclusion, bribery. (laughs) 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 That's the new PSUK campaign: bribe a white. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey you said it. <laughs> okay, thank you so much for joining us for an interview that somehow I think is gonna get all of us fired. Hashtag White.
1: So that was Kindy Andrews. He's the author of The Psychosis of Whiteness, Surviving the Insanity of a Racist World, out now in all good bookshops.
5: For the love of home.
1: So it's time for you to reveal the PSUK Villain of the Week, Nish.
2: My villain this week is a political party that I've been previously not wanting to talk about, but it feels like they're... Success is, at the very least, noteworthy at the moment, especially in the polling. Uh, It's the UK Reform Party. Uh, Now, for those of you who are blessed enough to have no idea who these people are, uh, their leader is Richard Tice, who's a right-wing multimillionaire who bankrolled the Brexit movement. And they have an honorary president, Mr Nigel Farage, who is, of course, currently sunning himself in in Australia, uh, where he's doing a reality TV show called I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, which seems to involve him downing smoothies made of dog's dicks. Earlier this week, Christine McCannier, uh, the General Secretary of Unison, accused Tice of harking back to the 1940s after he said high levels of... Of immigration. We're changing the nature of our country and making us poorer culturally. Now, the reason it feels noteworthy to talk about them at the moment is they have started to poll at the same amount as the Liberal Democrats, right? So the latest polls show the Conservatives on 21% and the Reform Party up to 10%. Now... Obviously, the UK Reform Party polling at 10% is a worrying thing in of itself, but it's more about the impact it will have on the Conservative Party, because as we seen in the last 13 years... If the Conservative Party is concerned about being outflanked on the right, it tacks harder and harder to the right to head off that whatever movement it is, whether it's the uh, Brexit Party, the UK Independence Party. They have constantly tried to absorb the harder right by doing things like, say, for example, giving them a Brexit referendum. And the UK Reform Party is not just coming after Conservative voters on the hard right of the party. It's also going after Conservative MPs. So Lee Anderson has actually claimed this week he's an MP that I think we would all agree comes from the very much hard right of the Conservative Party. He's claiming that he was offered money to switch to Reform UK. Now, Richard Tice has denied that that happened, but he has said that he's had numerous discussions with Conservative MPs, including ministers, who are furious with what he claims is the government's betrayal on migration. So this is further toxifying the debate around migration and going to further poison our politics and make the next general election even uglier than it's already shaping up to be. And the other thing that concerns me about Reform UK is you know, we are seeing a real swing towards the hard, hard right in recent elections in the Netherlands mm-hmm. and Argentina. We're really seeing this kind of ugly side. The AFD is surging in Germany. The you know, Marine Le Pen as well. Marine Le Pen. These, yeah. are, the, these are all things that should deeply concern us. It's really, really scary. What What's happening at the moment, the Argentinian result, what's happened in the Netherlands with Geert Wilders and, you know, the surge of the AFD, the rise of Le Pen again in France. I don't know how many Indiana Jones movies we all have to watch to know that Nazis are bad. (laughs) I I, I seriously don't. Is nobody getting the message of these goddamn movies? How many Indiana Jones? Harrison Ford is in his 80s. Is he going to have to keep making them until he's dead? Are we going to have to get a hologram of Harrison Ford to continue driving this message home? I find the rise of the hard right and our obsession with talking about the Second World War impossible to square in this country. All we ever do is say, never forget what happened in the Second World War, never forget what happened in the Second World War. Ooh, these extremely right-wing politicians have nice haircuts. This country's motto should be, never forget, but also never learn. (laughs) (laughs) For legal reasons, I should clarify, I'm not calling Reform UK Nazis.
1: My hero of the week is is, is someone who has been trying to take a stand against exactly what you're talking about. So uh, my hero of the week is Nick Lowles. He's the managing director of Hope Not Hate, which is a group which campaigns against racism and fascism. So... I'll be honest, I only recently came across Nick Lowell's online. I'm aware of uh, Hope Not Hate. Um, Funnily enough, I was actually just saying to the producers this morning, I first came across Hope Not Hate because they were involved with Love Music Hate Racism, if you remember that. One of my very formative uh, political experiences. So I came across him recently when, with all the sort of controversy around the uh, Palestine Solidarity March on Armistice Day, uh, Nick was there at the Cenotaph amongst what looked like quite scary scenes. Some of the footage that we saw of these far right believers, followers or English lads, as they call themselves, fighting the police were Nick Lowell's uh, footage. And I just think just for a start, well, that's quite brave to be there. You know, there's yeah. quite a lot of violence there. Uh, he wanted to document it and he wanted to showcase it. So that's how I first came across him. But he's been doing a lot of work um, just around monitoring and fighting against the far right. Now, he's had a success recently. I mean, he's had many. He's he's done a life's work on this issue. But the one I want to talk to you about is how he exposed a historian called Nikki Shaw. So Channel 5 were going to show a documentary this, this week. It was called The Year the Thames Flooded and Nikki Shaw was going to contribute. Uh, Nick Lowell's highlighted some statements that this Shaw had previously made. Um, he, she was very much on his radar. She had allegedly called for the singer Sam Smith to be gassed and reports show that she posted images of herself doing a Hitler salute and licking a swastika lollipop hope not hate also claimed that shaw mixes with members of neo-nazi group combat 18 and they also said her facebook page was riddled with vile racism and dehumanizing language following the work that nick did to highlight this he posted about it online he gathered support channel 5 pulled the show from their schedule saying we will not be airing the film while producers look into this further i think that is an amazing bit of work that he's done so thank you to nick Lowells, our hero of the week.
2: Great choice, Coco. Um, we've actually also had uh, listener suggestion for Hero of the Week. Uh, Polly Enos Theobald has emailed us to say... Your last episode highlighted the campaign as Stop MSG Sphere London. Could I suggest another campaign group working hard towards a similar goal? Keep Campfields Closed are a group in Oxford working to keep an immigration removal centre from being developed on the site of a previous detention centre. I may not know much about the best way to help those seeking asylum in the UK, but opening these centres similar to Bibby Stockholm and the camps in Calais seems abhorrent. Many thanks for all that you guys do you do make the issues of today a lot more digestible than having to wade through the shit solo. Well, oh. <laughs> thanks very much, oh, that's Polly. That's nice. very, very sweet. But we're also uh, delighted uh, to give the people involved in Keep Campfields Closed a shout out. That seems like an extremely worthwhile cause. And it's work that we're very, very glad that you're doing. And if you want to find out more about what they're doing and why they're doing it, we'll pop a link in this week's episode description.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Campfields had lots of controversy around it when it was open. Uh, people went on hunger strikes. There yeah. were deaths. There was violence. It was it's not the sort of thing you want to repeat. So thank you for highlighting that.
2: And thanks to everybody who emailed us in, as ever. Um, quickly, a couple of episodes ago, we had an interview with LBC's James O'Brien. It was a great chat and it's well worth going back to if you missed it. Now, uh, at, in that interview, we mentioned Jeremy Corbyn's TV clash with Piers Morgan, in which the former Labour leader refused to say that Hamas were a terrorist group. Mr Corbyn's office have been in touch to point out that he has, both previously and since, been clear that he does consider Hamas a terrorist group, so we're happy to clarify that.
1: You can get in touch with us by emailing psuk at reduced listening.co.uk. We love hearing your voices, so please do send us a voice note if you can. Our number is 07514 572 And internationally, that's plus 644 We'd also love to get your thoughts on what we've discussed on this episode or you can send us a question about British politics or, or suggest something that you'd like us to cover in future.
2: Thanks for listening. See you next week. Podsafe the UK is a reduced listening production for Crooked Media.
1: Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer
2: Alex Bishop. Video editing was by David Kaplovitz and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos.
1: Thanks to our engineer, Alex Bennett.
2: The executive producers are Anushka Sharma, Dan Jackson and Madeleine Herringer with additional support from Ari Schwartz.
1: Watch us on Pod Save the World's YouTube channel. Follow us on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram where we are Pod Save the UK, all one
2: word. And hit subscribe for new shows on Thursday on Amazon, Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: When do I get to start doing the theme again?
2: You can do whatever you want.
1: Well, no, I feel like I've been shamed.
2: Why have you been shamed? You shamed
1: me. I didn't shame you. Didn't you. Did I've it. never
2: shamed you even once.
1: <laughs> what? That's, that's a lie. This is recorded. This shit is recorded.
2: <laughs> I don't feel that I shamed you about the theme okay. dude I believe I encouraged your musical <laughs> okay. flourish.
1: You think that's encouragement? Yeah. Th- <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs>